Good morning. Oh, I'm on. My name is Tim Roof. You don't know me. I have been a believer for about 25 years, and I've been attending Joy ever since we merged with Hope. I think that's about 20 years ago, if my math's right. Um, I have the honor today to read God's Word, Acts 2, uh, 42 through 47. It's on page 911, if you're using a pew Bible. It's just like God. It was funny. I was teaching Sunday school last week, and I told the, the students that I despise being up in front of the church having to read. And it's just like God to have me challenged because I was challenging them to speak out and not be afraid to speak. And Larry must have big brother watching me or something. <laughs> the Lord is good. Um, read with me. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them, the proceeds, sorry, to all who had any need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day and those who were being saved. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks for this beautiful day, for all that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for a body of believers uh, in this church, Lord, that... Uh, loves your word, that we have leaders who love your word, um, and we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that it admonishes us, it teaches us, um, and I pray that you would have uh, Larry bring your word today, open our eyes and ears to what he has to say, Lord. I pray that you would be with him, and that we would be challenged by it, Lord, and that it would be a blessing. In your name we pray, amen. Big brother, huh? Alrighty then. I trust that you, uh, most of you, maybe all of you, have noted at some point as you walked in or during this service these trays, these gold trays up here and these baskets and the overwhelming majority of you understand what that means for what's happening later on after the sermon. Uh, but whether you've noted that or not, I, I think most of us could, if you could go back to the stage, the point in your Christian discipleship where you really didn't know what this was or what it was about, that this thing we call the Lord's Supper is a little bit strange. Uh, we refer to it as a meal. It's a small meal. <laughs> Uh, we pass around, we're going to do this, we're going to pass around these trays and these baskets. You're going to take this little piece of crushed up cracker and a little doll-sized cup of juice and we're going to eat and drink and we're going to sing a hymn and we're going to go on our way. And to the, the uninitiated, let's say, the whole thing might just seem very bizarre. What are these people doing? Do they realize that that's not a meal? 
even for those of us who are faithful Christians, it might be hard for us to grasp or to articulate what it is that we're doing and what it is that we're receiving when we eat and and drink as we're going to do later in the service. It's hard for us to know how it's maybe connected to our faith, what effect it's supposed to have on us. Maybe we have questions like that and we're too embarrassed to ask uh, because we think we should know. Uh, Maybe we just haven't really given a lot of thought to it. We do it, but we don't really think much about it. Uh, I, heard, I heard one pastor make the comment, I don't know if this would be accurate or not, but if, if you were to poll 100 Christians and ask them, uh, what are some keys to growing in Christ, it perhaps is likely that you'd get more people saying journaling than referring to the practice of taking the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not opposed to journaling, and I would not deprive you of journaling if that's your thing. But it highlights the fact that maybe we don't necessarily give proper weight to and thought to what's happening when we observe the Lord's Supper. And that would be a problem because the observance of the Lord's Supper is part of what the disciples of Jesus were devoted to in the first days of the church. Uh, As we continue to study the book of Acts, uh, again, if you've been here the last few weeks, we're, we're just we're slowing down and we're just uh, taking our time to go through this paragraph that we just heard Tim read to us, which describes uh, what the church looked like and how they lived in the days after the promise of Jesus to send the Spirit was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost and a great harvest of souls was transferred out of the realm, the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And Luke gives us this picture at the end of Acts chapter 2 about what it looked like, how they lived together. And so we have considered over the past couple of weeks the devotion that the disciples had to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And Luke tells us now, third, we're going to be focusing our attention this morning on the fact that the disciples, the church, was devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, not everybody, when when it says there in Luke, uh, Acts 2.42, they were devoted to the breaking of bread, not everyone understands that to be a reference to the Lord's Supper. Some think it just refers to the the ordinary practice of Christians to gather together and and just what we would call hospitality. Just people, maybe you're after the service, you're going to have lunch, or sometime this week you're going to have a meal with another Christian, and some think that it's referring to that. Um, I would personally be leaning in the direction of understanding Acts 2.42 and this mention of the breaking of bread to be a reference to the Lord's Supper, Uh, mainly because we know that Jesus commanded that his disciples would observe the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. And if this is not a reference to the Lord's Supper, then we have a book that is chronicling for us the uh, birth and the growth of the church that makes no reference to the disciples of Jesus actually obeying that commandment. And that's a little bit hard for me to think, that, 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 that there would be a book like this in the Bible that said nothing about Jesus' command to observe that meal. So I do think it's referring to the Lord's Supper. Uh, I also think the placement of, of uh, the breaking of bread with these other three uh, references there to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the prayer, that leads me to thinking about these uh, items in verse 42 referring to the, 
the worship life of the church. It just doesn't seem to fit for me that, that, that Luke would comment and highlight that they were devoted to the teaching of God's word, the apostles' teaching, and the, the fellowship, the shared life they had together, and prayer, and they were devoted to eating. I'm sure a number of you can attest, praise God, I am devoted to eating. Check that one off. But I, I think this is a reference to that worshipful eating and drinking that takes place when the saints observe the Lord's uh, death and observe the Lord's supper in remembrance of what Jesus had done for them as he commanded them to do. So that's how I'm going to preach the text. Uh, I, I may be wrong about it, but even if I am wrong, I do hope that you will be edified as we consider on this ordinance, even as we prepare to eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus this morning. So uh, to help us in our study and in our consideration of that phrase, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Uh, let's just consider why they were devoted to the Lord's Supper and then how we can be devoted to the Lord's Supper. Rough outline. I'm just going to throw a lot at you about the Lord's Supper. Hopefully it is of help to you. Why they were devoted to the Lord's Supper, how we can be devoted to the Lord's Supper. Now, the answer to this first question, if I can frame it as a question, why were they devoted to the uh, breaking of bread? Why were they devoted to the Lord's Supper? I, I, I've already alluded to it, but I think it's worth dwelling on for some time. They were devoted to the breaking of bread because Jesus, their Lord, had commanded them to be devoted to it. Uh, Luke... We understand that Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote an account of Jesus' life. We call it the Gospel of Luke. And towards the end of the Gospel of Luke, he recounts the words of Jesus and the practice of Jesus on that, uh, that night before his death when Jesus was observing the Passover feast with his disciples. We're told in Luke 22, verse 19, that he, Jesus, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. That's a commandment. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus refers there to the new covenant. And we know that the Passover itself, which is what Jesus was there gathered with his disciples to celebrate, the Passover itself was a covenantal meal. It was a remembrance of God's faithfulness and his loyalty in keeping the great promises that he had made to Abraham that Abraham would become a great nation who would be, that nation would then be the instrument of God's blessing all the peoples of the earth. We read about that promise in Genesis chapter 12. And yet, Hundreds of years after that promise had been made, that same family of Abraham that had become a nation was not very remarkably a great nation. They were an enslaved nation in Egypt. This is not in my notes, but it may be useful for some to hear. Uh, let that remind you, beloved, that just because it's taking a long time for God to keep his promise, that does not mean he is unfaithful. It was hundreds of years went by. I'm going to make you a great nation. 400 years, they were an enslaved nation. But he was at work. And do not doubt that he is at work in your life. 
to keep his promises. The Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, heard the, the groaning and the cries of his afflicted people, and he sent to the Egyptians a series of plagues, culminating in the killing of every firstborn Egyptian male. But he said that he would protect the firstborn of his own people. He would protect the firstborn of the Israelites, provided that each Israelite household would sacrifice a lamb and spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their homes. And on that first Passover night, called the, the Passover, because the angel of the Lord, who was the instrument of death to the firstborn Egyptians, he would see the blood on the doorpost and he would pass over those Israelite homes. That first Passover night, families gathered together for a meal in which they ate from that sacrificed lamb with bitter herbs and with unleavened bread. And that meal would come to be remembered for years to come. That meal is still remembered today, not literally today, but in these days, it will be in March or April, whenever the, the date is, by Jewish people as they remember that mercy of God, as they remember that kindness of God in sparing Israel, his people. Not because they were without sin, but because Blood had been shed for them. The blood of the lamb had been shed and applied to their doorposts as they acted in faith. But what we know about the Israelites subsequent to that mighty act of deliverance is that repeatedly and habitually and defiantly they were unfaithful to their covenant Lord. We, we were called to worship Perhaps it was a peculiar verse to, be, to, to open our service, to call us to worship. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Kids, kids, eyes on me for just a moment, kiddos. Do you want to know what it's like to live for God, to follow God's way and obey his commandments? Do you want to know what that's like? It's not hard and gloomy and nasty. He says it's like opening your mouth wide and letting him fill it. And I'm not talking about filling it with like vegetables because it says later in Psalm 81, parents, maybe you want to read this whole Psalm with your kids later in the day. It says later in this Psalm that he would feed his people with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. He's a satisfying God. Following him is good and happy, and it, it, it tastes good. We're called to taste and see that the Lord is good. But do you know, kids and adults, how that verse goes on? This wonderful invitation, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. The next verse says, but my people did not listen to me. Or they did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. And throughout the Old Testament, that's what we see. We see God entering into covenants with his people. And throughout the Old Testament, we see his chosen people prove themselves again and again to be unfaithful covenant breakers. God is a covenant maker. Israel, who is representative of all humanity, are covenant breakers. So how could it be that this faithful, loyal, covenant-keeping God could enter into a lasting covenant bond with a covenant-breaking people. 
Well, enter Jesus of Nazareth and enter the Lord's Supper. Because when Jesus sat there with his disciples observing this Passover feast that was meant to remember their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, Jesus says, this meal is representing the new covenant that I am inaugurating for you. That new covenant had been promised by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel that the day was going to come that the Lord would pardon the sins of his people once for all. No more repetition of animal sacrifices to to temporarily find forgiveness, but permanent forgiveness. And the law of God being written upon the hearts of his people, not just on tablets of stone, but actually by the spirit coming to dwell in his people, the law written on our hearts so that the people of God might be able to walk in the statutes of God. And that new covenant, Jesus says, was being established. It was being inaugurated by Jesus' sacrifice. Through Jesus, all who turn from sin and who turn to him in faith become beneficiaries of all God's covenant covenant promises. He, he, He promises to be our God, that we might be his people if we would turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. And just like he did with his redeemed people in the Old Testament, he established an ongoing meal by which the disciples of Jesus might remember his sacrificial death, represented in that the breaking of his body and his blood being shed, that they would remember Jesus' death as the way that they had come to enter into that covenant relationship with the most high and the most holy God, whom they had offended by their sin, but whose sins were now being washed away by the blood of the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. And so the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church in Corinth, he He reminded them of Jesus' words, how they were commanded, how the churches were commanded to do this in remembrance of Jesus. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is an act of remembrance that preaches. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you preach, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. That's why they were devoted to it. It was a visible sermon. Some of you like visuals. Some of you have, as you know, maybe you could put up some pictures and, and some maps, and, and that's, it's not a sin to do that. I don't generally do that. But the Lord has given us two visible sermons. For those of us that want a visual, he gave us baptism and he gave us a meal to remember. To to remember that not just wayward Israel can be reconciled to God, but wayward humanity can be reconciled to God by the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus on the cross. And so if you're, if you're here this morning and you are, maybe don't consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, when, this, when these elements are passed around, I'll just do this warning now so I can be more to the point later in the service. If you're here this morning and you're not following Jesus, we would ask you to abstain from these elements because to, to take them without recognizing and really spiritually apprehending what it represents and applying it to yourself is to make a mockery of the bread and the cup. It's to make a mockery of the 
the torn body and the shed blood of Jesus. And the scriptures say it actually is to eat and drink judgment upon yourselves. So if you've not trusted in the Lord, if you're not intent on following him as your Lord, please do not eat and drink today. On the, uh, what, what, I, what we do call you to, though, is to hear the good news that though we have all sinned against him, we have all heard, every one of us has heard the creator say to us, open wide and I will give you food that is good. I will satisfy you and we have all turned away to seek the good life on our own terms. And the Bible calls that sin. And today, if you're here and you've not trusted Christ, rather than eat and drink mindlessly, what the Lord has called you to do is to recognize, I have sinned against God by going my own way, and I deserve his punishment for it. But the good news that we hold out for you, just as Paul said, what he received from the Lord, he was declaring to them, I'm now declaring to you that in Jesus there is pardon. Jesus took the sin that we had and he put it on himself and was punished with the punishment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed, and so that we could have eternal life. And we would call you today to turn today and believe upon the Lord Jesus. For those of us who have done that, this meal is a visible sermon, a way that we can tangent, we can see it, we can touch it, we can taste it, and we declare the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. How kind God is to give us this picture. There's something about taking pictures. We like to take pictures, right? Why do you take pictures of things? Pictures heighten and intensify the liveliness of our memories about a particular event or occasion. So, so I can, I, we, have a, we have a big picture wall in our dining room some, with, with some of our, our favorite memories from the past few months or past years. And I can, I can think right now in my mind about that time a couple of months ago when Noah and I, uh, we met his favorite professional golfer, Tony Finau, we met him at a, at, a, at a golf tournament, and I can remember it right now, and it was a great story. One of these days, I'm going to tell you the whole story because it's a great story, but it's not, it doesn't illustrate what I want to illustrate today. But I can, I can remember that and think about that time fondly. But when I look at the picture wall and I see that picture of Noah with Tony Finau, that brings, there's a liveliness to the memory. There's an intensification of that memory that is evoked. And so... We can remember, and we should remember the death of Jesus on our behalf. We should, we should remember it when we read the Bible, when we're going about our day, when we're conversing with one another. We can remember that Jesus died for me. But those memories are enlivened when we can see something, when we can touch something and taste something. We taste the bread, and we remember that as real as that bread is in the mouth, so real is the Son of God's having come in flesh and blood and giving up his body for us so that we might have eternal life. As we taste the sweetness of that juice, we remember the sweetness of having our sins forgiven and being brought into the family of God because Jesus poured out his blood for us. At this, at this table, we do, in fact, redeemed by God from our lawless idolatry and our rebellious hostility to him, we do open our mouths wide and we taste and see that he is good. He is unwaveringly 
covenantally bound to us in goodness and mercy. And we remember that once we were his enemies, but now we've been seated at his table. Once we were headed to hell, but now we've been made happy and holy citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. Once we were condemned in our sin, but now we've been counted righteous. Once we were enslaved to sin, but now we've been set free to serve and glorify God. And so we come to the table to remember him. But we don't remember just that he did this for me. We do that, but we don't just do that. We, we remember that he did it for us, for the fellowship of the family of God. I will not let you forget these words that begin verse 42. And they, and they devoted themselves. The Christian life, and that includes our coming to eat and drink in remembrance of him, is lived out in the fellowship of his people. Jesus' death on the cross did not only cleanse us from the guilt and power of our sins, but it brought us into God's family. And we remember that at the table. When we eat and drink together, we declare that we're here because of Jesus. And it's by his grace alone that we've been made a family. That's just not a small incidental element of our devotion to the breaking of bread. The Lord's Supper is designed by God to be an act which binds together, which unites the family of God as one. So again, to the Corinthians, who were a, they were a mess. Remember, the Corinthians divided, quarreling, strife. He's, he's going to rebuke them in chapter 11 for that strife and that conflict. But in chapter 10, he sets up his, his he, he basically prepares them for the rebuke that's coming when he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This one bread, this sharing together is meant to testify to and mark us off as a people, as one united family. Um, I, I love the way I have, to, I have to get at this. Brian Davis, who you remember Brian, he was here back a few months ago and brought the word to us. Brian illustrates this in a wonderful way that I just have to pass on to you. He, he has a, I don't know if you call it a game, I don't know what it is, but he has this thing in his family where there's, there's him and his wife and they got three kids and if, any, if they're together, as long as they're together, they have to all five be together. But if, uh, if one of them says at any point, I love this family, all, the whole rest of the family has to declare in unison, I love this family. I have a wonder, there's one time where I was hearing him preach a sermon, and he said that he was illustrating this to the church, and he said, if I tell my kids I love this family, if I say I love this family, and they all yelled before he, I love this family, they were obedient. And he says that in the, in the supper, that's essentially what's happening with God and his family. We, we, Jesus holds out his broken body and his shed blood. He says, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Drink. This is my blood. He says, I love this family. And we all together take it. Looking around and we all testify together. I love this family. Because we are confessing that we had to be died for to become a part of this family. And praise God, we were died for. That declaration we make together as a family. Testifying to our oneness. The Lord's Supper 
is, is something that is meant to remind us of the great salvation for me personally, and it's something that is meant to bind us together in love and unity, and, to quote Frank Letko, and that's not all. There's, there's more that the Lord's Supper does for us. Because it, it is sweet to remember what he's done for us in the past through his sacrificial death. And it is sweet for us to feed our faith now, to nourish our to share in Christ. That's the verse, right? I didn't share that verse in 1 Corinthians 10, that when we eat and drink, it's a participation in the body and the blood of Christ. We share in Christ, and we share in that common union that we have together. That's wonderful. But we know, and I trust that almost all of us feel it in one way or another, even as we come into this building today, we know we are far from home. The Lord has been so good to us, but we still know this experience of being strangers and exiles here, refugees here, longing for our homeland. And the supper preaches that too. That home is coming because Jesus is coming again and he's going to make all things new. After, after he uh, held up, when he was celebrating that Passover meal with his disciples, and Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he held up the cup and he said, this is my blood of the covenant. It says, in, this is in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 26, 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And in saying that, Jesus pointed to his triumphant resurrection, even while initiating a meal for remembering his death. Right? How would he be able to share and drink anew in the Father's kingdom if he was about to die the next day and give his life? Because he was going to rise from the dead. And so this meal does most certainly point to his death. And it, but it points beyond his death to his defeat of death and his promise to come again and to subdue every enemy and to wipe away every tear from our eyes and to turn every one of our afflictions into an incomparably heavy weight of glory and to make all things new. Do you not long for that day, beloved? When, when we come into that experience that is described in Revelation 19, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, talking about a roar far greater than there was at Citizens Bank Ballpark on whatever night it was that the Phillies actually did well. I'm talking about a roar far greater than that with the people of God crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Oh, blessed indeed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's that feast that we read about earlier in Isaiah chapter 25, that feast that we're going to sing of at the end of our service. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. Oh, oh, how our hearts long for that day. We, we cry out, when shall I reach that happy place and see our Father's face, face and in his bosom rest? Because you need to be reminded of that. 
And I need to be reminded of that. And every time we eat and drink, we proclaim to one another, it's coming. It's coming, beloved. It's coming, beloved, because he's coming. The, the, this bread and, and wafer, or this bread and cup, it's just a little signpost. It's like, it's like you know, you walk in the house, maybe you were out, or you come down on Thanksgiving morning, and you can just smell those smells. It's like, oh, it's coming. The feast is coming. This bread and juice are a little appetizer, a little taste, a little down payment of a great feast that is soon to come when all the ransomed of the Lord shall come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy will be on our heads and all sorrow and all sighing will flee away as we sit down to eat and drink at table with Jesus in the kingdom of our Father. There's a lot of good happening at that table. And I don't, when I was writing this, I thought I could just, we could just stop there. We could just eat and drink. And I'm, I'm thinking about it even right now. Is it worth me giving you some practical guidance on how to observe the Lord's Supper, how we can be devoted to it? I'm going to do it because I think there may be some things that edify you. If it was all about rhetorical flourish, I would just stop there and, and pray and be done. But I'm not just here to entertain you. I'm here to edify you. And I believe there may be some guidance that we could consider together. Just put it out there briefly for you, and you could discuss it more, but I think it will be edifying, so I am going to do it. How can we be devoted to the Lord's Supper? Um, I, I have six suggestions, but I promise they will be brief. First, first. In order to be devoted to the breaking of bread, observe the Lord's Supper regularly. Observe the Lord's Supper regularly. Now, I'm, I'm not, in mentioning that, I'm not wading into the question of how frequently should a church take the Lord's Supper. Uh, I, I trust that some of you, because I know some of you, uh, I trust some of you are hearing all that I've just said for the last 20 minutes and saying, yeah, yeah, so why aren't we doing it every week? Yeah. And I have sympathy you. Others of you, I know, because we've talked about this before. Others of you feel like this is such a sacred thing, such a wonderful thing. I think we, if we did it more regularly, it might take away something of the sacredness of it. Well, you know what, beloved? Talk about that amongst yourselves. I think our congregation, I actually believe our congregation is mature enough and loves each other enough to talk about that. Talk about that after the service. Talk about that this week in your small groups. I'm actually not meaning to, talk, to get into that, though, when I say come regularly. I'm simply saying when it is Communion Sunday, for us, which is the first Sunday of each month, be very cautious about neglecting that. I'm not, it's important that we not neglect any Sunday, right? The scriptures call us to not be neglectful of the assembling of ourselves together. But all the more when we have this sacred time which Jesus commanded us to eat and drink, let us not be negligent in making sure that we are here. Jesus commanded it. He commanded it under very weighty circumstances during the Passover celebration. When he was going to die on the next day, we should be devoted to eating and drinking. We should not just be casual about our attendance and our participation on those communion Sundays. 
Secondly, I'll just tell you what this is, and I'm actually going to not give you the whole deal, but I'm going to mention it when we come to the table. Second, come hungrily. I don't even know if hungrily is a word. Come hungrily. I'll get into that in a a couple minutes. Third, come, come to the supper corporately, meaning come as a, as a meaningfully united part, I might even dare use the word member, as of the body of Christ. Uh, the, the words, I forgot my bulletin down there, but the words that are printed in your bulletin, as it, right after the part about communion, when it speaks specifically about our encouragement, not our demand, but our encouragement that you consider taking the supper worthily by being baptized into an accountable relationship with a local church. Those words are there for your reflection and consideration. Again, we make no demand. We slap no one's hand away from the, from the bread and the cup if they're not taking it as a baptized member of a local church. But we commend that to you in part because of the progression that we see right here in this passage. Do you, do you see, and if you just, Bible's open. Um, there is a, I'm trying to find what the particular verse is. Verse 41, there was a receiving of the word. That receiving of the word was repent, repent, believe the good news. They received the word. They were baptized. They were added, added to the number. They were recognized by others, they were recognized and added to the number, and then they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the prayers, and the fellowship, and the breaking of, of bread. Baptism is, the, is, was, is also a covenant sign. It's a way that we are included. It's the way that we are publicly recognized and included in the family. And the Lord's Supper is the ongoing way that we renew that commitment to the body. So uh, if you have not been baptized, as it says right here to do, if you've not been baptized, if you've not been accountably united to a local congregation of believers, we would just commend that you not take that lightly. Being baptized and joining a church is how you say to a particular group of Christians, I, I'm here and I do intend to be devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers with you. That commitment we call membership and we do commend it to you. But beloved, beyond just that point about membership, when I say be meaningfully a part of a congregation as you come to the table, I don't just mean be a member on paper. I mean enter into the lives and the stories of your brothers and sisters. Make it a point in preparing for the supper. If you know a communion Sunday is coming, make a point to reach out to some of your brothers and sisters and learn more about how God has worked and is working in the lives of other members. A wonderful thing to do would be in the next month, okay, before we come to the table again in December, make it a point to find some other Christian in this congregation that you don't know particularly well and ask them how they came to know the Lord. And don't ask for the 30-second version, but let them tell you the story of how they came to know the Lord. Or maybe how they have seen themselves growing in the Lord. Or ways that they're still struggling to grow. And that way, when you come, it really can be a corporate coming. You can thank God, not just for the grace in your own life, but also for the grace in their lives. The more and more you are acquainted with the stories of grace in your own fellowship. So come 
What was that? Come corporately. Come reflectively. Come reflectively. I'm thinking specifically here about the call in regards to the Lord's Supper that we examine ourselves. In context of 1 Corinthians 11, that call to examine ourselves is clearly uh, a call to examine whether we have severed the nerve between love for Christ and love for his people. As I mentioned earlier, there were these factions and divisions. It was, a, it was outrageous in Paul's mind. But I do believe there's a broader application. It, that, that someone who knows themselves to be living in sin and is determined not to give up that sin is not eating and drinking in a worthy manner. How, how can we worthily remember Jesus' death while at the same time clinging to the accursed thing which necessitated the very death that we're remembering and thanking God for? There can be much confusion on this point. So I want to make absolutely clear None of us is perfect. If you had to live a perfectly sinless life in order to be able to eat and drink today, guess what? Shut this thing down. No need to get, the, you know, no need to get it ready every month. I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but I am talking about a sincere resolve and desire to live an upright and holy life and a grief over the sin that we still do struggle with. I think the Heidelberg Catechism puts it quite well when it answers the question, who should come to the Lord's table in this way? those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Come to the table reflectively, Am I displeased because of my sin? Or am I basically okay and fine with it? It just is what it is. Am I desirous more and more to strengthen my faith and lead a better life? I know how worthy he is of my devotion. I know I've fallen short. I'm grieved over how, how I've fallen short, but I long to grow. Oh, then come and partake happily. But be honest with yourself. If you're content to live in sin, you are not eating and drinking in a worthy way. Lastly, observe the supper hopefully. Hopefully. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. I can't wait. I can't wait. Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. When there's be no end to the joy, no more struggle with sin, no more suffering, on that day, there's a day coming. We'll be done with these little paltry, little piece of cracker and little cup of juice. We will put that away forever because we will have come into the real feast that will be our permanent experience, and we will say on that day what Michelle had a hard time getting through when she read, especially the last verse, uh, Isaiah 25, 9. This is our God. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let us come, hopefully. Saints, there is a whole lot of blessing to be found at the Lord's table. I hope it's helped you this morning to just think about some of the ways we are helped 
by this wonderfully good God who has given us this tangible, visual sign by which we might remember all this wonderful glory that he has prepared for those who repent and believe in him. Until that blessed day when he does come and our faith becomes sight and we sit down with him at that feast, may we be found faithfully devoted to that meal which he gave us in remembrance of him. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray and then we'll come to the table. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for uh, your patience with us. And we pray, Father, there's a, a lot that's been said this morning. Uh, and and it, it perhaps, it, I trust it does just meet different people in different ways. And there's different parts of what has been said that meets them. But Father, we pray that we, as we come now to eat and drink, that, we're, that we've been prepared to do so worthily in reflecting upon the goodness that you've shown us in giving us this ordinance. And we pray that we would experience uh, more of your grace, that we would taste and see that you are good this morning as we eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.